Today the plan is to tackle or begin trying to tackle Revelation chapter 6. Before we do that, let's go through a few things together. Let's just make sure we always know where we are. We're right here, chapter 6. Chapter 4, remember, we saw, or we got John's vision of God the Father on his throne. He's able to see behind the curtain. Remember, there was a book in the right hand of the Father, and only the Lamb could open the book. Only he could do it. And this caused those in heaven to go from weeping to celebrating. That was chapter 5, the book with the seven seals. Now, in chapter 6, we're going to read about the, or study about the first six seals which are opened. Chapter 5, the main question of Revelation is addressed. Would God and his people be victorious in this battle? A book with seven seals is introduced. God is holding in his right hand, and it reveals the outcome to the war. No one can be found to open and break the seals. This caused John to weep. The lamb entered the story, and he's the only one worthy to open the seals. The lamb is also called a lion from the tribe of Judah. He's portrayed as having been slain. He's worshipped by those in heaven, just like the father. He is portrayed as the conquering king who will lead his people to victory over their enemies. Only as he is worthy and able to open the scroll and reveal the outcome to the war. Now we, we continue to try to be mindful of three of the guideposts we saw in Revelation 1. The language of Revelation is unique. We are in territory of apocalyptic apocalyptic style, signs and symbols. Be very mindful of that as we keep going. The time frame for Revelation, tell me again, these things will take place way down the line. Is that what the scripture said? Shortly. These things will soon come to pass. And the audience for Revelation, the initial audience, well, Mitch did a series of wonderful lessons on that, and that's the seven churches, the seven churches of Asia. Now today, we are going to consider the story of Revelation, the overall wide-shot story of Revelation. Revelation 6 contains the opening of the first six seals of the book that was in the right hand of the Father. This book reveals the outcome to the battle that was being waged between the army of God and the army of Satan, as the Lamb breaks each one of the seals, there are seven seals, as the Lamb breaks each one of the seals, a different part of the story of Revelation is revealed. Now, we're going to try to knock out maybe three or four of these seals today, and we'll finish it up, Lord willing, on Wednesday. But before I do that, I want to just kindly, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be very kind about it to the best of my ability to offer a disclosure, the, dis, the disclosure. Remember, Revelation is an apocalyptic book, so it's kind of hard to be dogmatic on apocalyptic literature. It's not black and white like we're used to black and white kind of stuff. I mean, a lot of us don't like reading Leviticus, but the fact of the matter is, that's how we think, like Leviticus, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not. That's how we like stuff, and yet we don't like that book too much. I think there's always some irony in that. But Revelation is not like Leviticus. And so it's hard to be dogmatic. It's not so clear-cut. And so what I'm going to do is offer to you things that I've studied, things that I'm convicted on, 
things that I believe is going on here. I ask with humility and kindness that if you disagree with some of these things, don't bog down the class with that. We got new converts in here. Be mindful of them. They're probably confused enough as it is. They've gone from learning the steps of salvation to now learning Revelation, okay? So let's just be mindful of just how confusing this book is. And so let me present these things. If you want to say some things or add some things to, to what I'm going to present, that's fine. But I don't want to use this venue for disagreeing about interpretation because we're dealing with an apocalyptic book. So I, I, I just want to offer that disclosure, please. Let's start with the first seal. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. The seals are being broken. Who's breaking the seals again? Somebody tell me. Jesus, Jesus is breaking them. The lion, the lamb. John says, and I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering to conquer. Okay. Let's go through this a little bit. I'm going to ask for a little participation. What does John see when the first seal is broken? What does he see when the first seal is broken? What comes out? Who's on the right horse? White, let's get it all. We're going to break it all down. The white horse, but who's on it? A starts with an R. A rider is on it. So we want to break it all down. So a rider is on a white horse. A rider is on the horse. What does the rider have? What is he, what is he carrying? He's got a bow. What's on his head? What is he wearing? Okay, so we got a rider on a white horse. He's got a bow. And he's got a crown, right? Now, what is the rider doing? Is he just riding along? What does the Bible say he's doing? He's conquering. It's a conquering rider, right? This is a rider who is experiencing victory. This is not a man just riding on a horse here. He's accomplishing something. He is accomplishing conquest, victory. Now, typically, in apocalyptic literature, these things we, we see here, they mean, they mean different things. They, they mean something. So I want to see what your thoughts are on this, okay? I want you to see if you can help me with this. Because maybe, maybe we can get some good understanding here. Let's start with white. Okay, let's just start with the color white. We've seen that color before, haven't we, in the book, haven't we? So what does white usually represent in this style of, of genre? What does white typically represent? Purity. I think that's pretty safe when you say... White. Jesus was, a, he was white. He was clothed in white when John saw him. So I think we can be safe there. This is a pure figure here. This is someone who's in allegiance with God. We can say that, right? The bow, a bow. Now, when we say bow, we're not talking about like a bow and a gift, right? When we say bow, what are we talking about here? Yeah, and which is an instrument of war. Right, done. Instrument of war. So we got a man in white. He's, he's pure, but he's got a weapon of war. Okay? The crown. We've seen the crown before, too. What does the crown represent, typically? What do you think about the crown? Yes. 
Victory, ex explain what you mean a little bit more, if you don't mind, Lance. Every time I see crown in the book, my text would be, is it diadem or Stephanos? If it's diadem, it's authority. If it's Stephanos, victory. Yes, yes, good. I never thought of it. That's, that's a good, so you, victory, right? Yes, sir, Don, go ahead, sir. Not necessarily victory. It's also used as a Roman, and it was given as a, a sign of an office. You have a special job to do. Here is your crown. Right. No, I, I, that's a good observation. No, I, 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 I like that. I think that's a good observation there. So some say authority, some say victory. In my judgment, and it's just my thinking on it, and I agree with you, Don, I think both could be applied here, but I lean toward just my thinking on it based on what I'm seeing here in the context, and, I, and I'll explain this as we keep going. I think when you think about him con, having conquest, I think of victory. I think he's experiencing some success in whatever he's doing. And I'll explain that more. Now, what you find here, and this is where that Old Testament background helps us a little bit. Can anybody think of a book of the Old Testament where you find different colored horses coming out in a vision? Zechariah. This is Zechariah. This is Zechariah chapter 6. This is very similar to Zechariah 6. In Zechariah 6, you find the same kind of stuff going on. you got different color horses coming out in a vision. So this apocalyptic stuff going on here, this is nothing new what John is doing, it's even with these horses. Now, the rider, that's what throws a lot of people off. I'm going to tell you about me, and y'all know this about me by now. I don't like to assume things that the Bible doesn't say. I've always been one of those kind of people. You know, one of the things that frustrates me is when people come to me with these questions like, hey, hey do you know what the forbidden fruit was in the garden? No, I don't. I'm just a man. <laughs> I don't have some kind of special revelation. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. All I know is what the Bible says. My job as a preacher is just to teach the Bible. I don't have any divine revelation here. I'm not going to see anything any different than you do. I'm just a human. So I'm not going to assume things and don't expect me to have some special knowledge here of what this stuff means. I can only go by what the text says. That's all I can do. I don't know what the forbidden fruit was. I don't know what that is. I, I don't know a lot of these different questions. Where did Cain get his wife from? I don't know. I just know what the Bible says. That's all I know. And I don't really know who the writer is. I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I believe it is. Some say, what I read, say that it represented like one of the generals who came against Rome. Maybe you've studied that before. Some say maybe represents a Parthian enemy. I don't lean towards that way, but I can see how people can make that, make that assumption. The Rome, Romans did go against the, those folks, and, and they experienced defeat. Others say it's Jesus. Maybe you think Jesus. This is Jesus. That's a common thought among our brethren. Could be right. If you say Jesus, I'll say this, that your belief in that is not really too far away from what I think is going on here. I think we can line our beliefs up perfectly. If you want to say Jesus, fine. I believe that what's being, what this represents is the conquest of the gospel. I believe that what's going on here, as the story of Revelation opens up, the story of Revelation, I'm going to keep repeating that, the story of Revelation 
The story of Revelation begins with the preaching of the gospel. It begins with the gospel going out to all people. Jesus told his people to go preach the gospel to every creature, didn't he? And when we go preach the gospel, do we have some authority when we go preach? We have some authority. We have authority from God. We're preaching the message from God. And, and, and so think about that. Now, let me show you some scriptures here in Acts, just to show you the kind of impact that the early Christians were having on the world of the Roman Empire. I know in Acts, most of the persecution that the Christians are experiencing is coming from the Jews. That's much of Acts, Jewish persecution. Now, later, it will transition later, a few decades later, to Roman persecution. But now it's Jews in Acts because the Jews struggle with this transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. They struggle with realizing that the Gentiles are going to be on the same level with us and that our physical ties to Abraham don't mean anything. We studied that this morning. John was letting them know right away, that day's coming. It's coming. So in Acts 8 and verse 4, after the church was persecuted, the church is starting to get persecuted here. After the death of Stephen, remember the death of Stephen by the Sanhedrin council? And then Saul of Tarsus starts persecuting the church. And he starts running the Christians out of Jerusalem. And it says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. God used his evil for good. He was trying to destroy the church, but God is scattering his disciples out. And now they're going all over the place preaching the gospel. They go to Samaria. That's the rest of the chapter. And Philip converts many of the Samaritans. And then later he converts a, a man from Ethiopia. And then later in chapter 9, Saul, the persecutor, he's converted. And then in chapter 10, we read about, uh, read about the Gentiles being converted. God is, is, is con conquering the souls of men through the gospel. Look at Acts 17 and verse 6. In Acts 17 and verse 6, when Paul went to Thessalonica, and started converting people there, and the Jews started persecuting those converts. It says in Acts 17 and verse 6, when they did not find them, Paul and his co-workers, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the civil city authorities, shouting, and I like the way my translation puts it, the New American Standard translation, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Now, some of your translations may say it even better. They turned the world upside down. I think I like that even better. What does that show us when the Bible says they were turning the world upside down? They were disrupting the status quo. <laughs> they, were the status quo. they were just converting all kinds of people and just messing up stuff for those who oppose Jesus, those who oppose the gospel, those who oppose, oppose the church. Do you think we can still make that kind of impact today? Can we turn the world upside down? Can we at least turn the valley upside down? We're supposed to be. We're supposed to be doing that, shouldn't we? One person at a time. That's right. We do it one person at a time. That's exactly right. So, so that's Acts 17 and verse 6. Now look at Acts 19.10. Acts 19.10 says that when Paul was in Ephesus, we studied Acts 19 this morning. In verse 10 it says that, you know, Paul was teaching at this school of Tyrannius every day, preaching the gospel. And this took place for two years so that all in Asia, this is, we're talking about Asia Minor here, the region of Asia at this time, they heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So who all was hearing the gospel in Asia during these just two years? Everybody was. Now that's some serious impact, didn't it? 
The whole region of Asia is hearing the gospel in just two years? That's, that's crazy. Now go to Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. And, and Paul wrote Colossians around the same time he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, about 63, 64 A.D., okay? That's only 30 years after Jesus had went to heaven. And in Colossians 1 verse 23, Paul said to them, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation, notice that, all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So by 63 A.D., according to this verse, the gospel had been preached where? Under all creation, everywhere. It had gone out everywhere. So the gospel is making a serious impact. It, it, it is going out into the world. People are being converted. Churches are being established, local churches. Elderships are being established. Deacons are being put into the church. You got Jews, Gentiles. Satan is suffering some terrible blows in these beginning stages. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 19 that the church, the kingdom of God, would start out how? Like a, like a mustard seed, but then he would grow to what? Big plant, where all the birds would come and find rest. That's what's going on. It's growing. Yes, sir, Brother Mitch. Go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. How he did that, or at least No, that, that's right, Mitch. Mitch was saying that this would be consistent, this view here, with what we've been learning in Revelation about how nobody's able to break the book. Nobody on the earth, nobody in heaven, nobody under the earth, but Jesus. And it is through Jesus, through the power of Jesus Christ, through his gospel, that people are being converted. And I think that's a good point to point out, how when, how when we teach people, and I'm talking to Sean Jeffries first, I'm talking to me first on this. If I teach somebody and I baptize somebody, no glory goes to me. No glory goes to Sean Jeffries. The glory goes to Jesus because ultimately it was through his redemptive work and through his gospel, not my gospel, his gospel that somebody was saved. So Jesus conquers hearts through the gospel. And that same thing is true today. Today, Jesus continues to conquer hearts, but he doesn't do it through brute force, does he? The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of the world. It's not through military. It's not through brute force. It's not through politics. It's not, and watch this now, be ready for this, Jesus doesn't even conquer hearts through what we do at the ballot box. That makes sense? We need to vote. I've said that many times to you. We need to vote. We need to make our voice heard. But Jesus doesn't conquer hearts through the ballot box, through the laws passed in Washington. Jesus conquers hearts through the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. And so I believe that the beginning part of the story of Revelation is found through the gospel going out, through the through. Through the, through the gospel going out and Jesus 
converting people through his gospel, conquering them, bringing them into the kingdom. I think that's where the story starts right there. Everything else follows after that. I think this will make more sense as we keep going. Brother Dunn, go right ahead. So I'll, I'll pause right there. Maybe after Brother Dunn, someone else may have another comment. Please feel free to. For those that have read ahead, you'll notice the various other characters that are, that are, called, for, that are called out in Revelation. Not a single one of them is an individual. The dragon may be an individual, but it's more of the influence of Satan acting upon the beast of the land of the sea. Right. I think that's where it starts. And I like how Brother Don was saying, you know, you can't put one individual with these represent these symbolic things here. And that's exactly what a lot of people want to do. They want to say, well, one thing represents the Pope or Hitler or Bin Laden or a president that we've had or whatever. Can't do that. Can't do it. Uh, I think it's deeper than that. And so, so far, I hadn't got fired yet. I'm good so far. <laughs> Boy, Mitch is itching. Rick is, is he itching. He ready to give me that pink slip. I'm, I, I'm okay so far, right, Rick? All right, go ahead, Gary, then, then we'll move on. <laughs> Well, I get that, and I, I'm a simple guy, Gary. I'm just from East Texas. I like to keep things simple, and, and, and I look at it just very simple as the gospel is conquering. It's, it had conquered at this time. It was continuing to conquer, but there are going to be some bad things that result from that. So it's just emphasizing the conquering of, of, of the army of Jesus, of the cause of Christ. That's where it all starts. The only, I mean, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation in the first place if the gospel wasn't being successful and Christians were not being persecuted. You know, anytime God's people start doing well, the devil jumps in. And, 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 and for those of you who've been to church a long time, isn't that true? When, when the church starts doing well, it makes you get a little scared a little bit. It's like, uh-oh, something coming soon. We're doing too well. For too, the devil, you think he's going to just sit back and be like, ah, oh, they're doing great. They're converting these people. They got elders that are leading well. They got deacons who are doing their job. You know, they got everything. Just, I'm just going to lead them along. You think he's going to do that with us, really? No, he's going to really start focusing on a church like that. He wants to mess a church like that. He wants to mess the cause of God up as much as he can. Now, let's go to the next seal. Seal number two. Seal number two. When I broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted him to take peace from the earth, and that he would slay, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Okay, so this time, what does John see? We got another rider comes out, and this rider's on a what? He's got a red horse. I'm, I, so, so I'm, again, I'm not going to just give you opinions of what I think red means here. I want to focus on more on what, what the big picture is. I want to focus more on what the rider's doing. Let's talk about what he's doing. 
That's what the Bible focuses on. He's taken something. What is he taking? He's taking peace away. No peace on the earth. So you got this one rider who's conquering. He's got success, but this other rider comes along. He's a no, no, no peace. No peace. He's promoting murder. Do you see that? He's slain with the what? With the sword. So you got this, so you got one that's conquesting, I believe, to represent the conquest of the gospel and the cause of Christ. And I believe the second rider who comes out taking peace from the earth and he's he's promoting murder and slain with the great sword. I think that represents the conflict that follows the gospel. The conflict that follows the gospel. This is why Revelation was written in the first place. Because of the conflict that followed the gospel. Why are the Christians being persecuted? Lance has a comment. As, you, as Lance makes that comment, turn to Revelation chapter 2. Go ahead, Lance. Go right ahead, sir. The, the conflict that, that comes to my mind is the fact that Jesus argued that he, you know, families are going to be upset. There's, 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 whenever someone believes, there's a change, and the people around about them are going to have to deal with that change. And in many places, it can tear a family apart. But if the rest of the family is converted, so Lydia's case, that's a good thing. But but we still recognize that there's a transition period there, and and, and there's angst and there's tension and there's conflict, and, and there's just, that's just the definition of, of a lack of peace. And I think it was Matthew 10. Jesus said, "I think not to come to bring peace, but sword. I can't bring sword. I came to divide people, divide people through the gospel. You're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to stand with me or stand with your family?" Jesus says, you got to hate your mother, your father. Hate means there's the idea. You can't love them more than me. you gotta, you got to love me, number one. If you put me first, you're going to have conflict. Don't think those Jews in Acts 2 who got baptized were able just to go home and everything was good. Why do you think some of them had to go around Jerusalem? And we had to get people like Barnabas to feed them. Why? Because they couldn't go back home. Their decision to become Christians just severed ties in their family. And the Jews were very hostile about that. Very hostile. Acts 2, verse 9, Mitch went through this stuff, went through it very well. I just want to touch it just, just to make my point here. Remember what Jesus told the church at Smyrna, Acts 2, 9. I know you're what? Your tribulation. They're going through tribulation. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You will suffer. You're going to be put in prison. You're going to have tribulation. You may have to die for the cause. Be faithful even if it means you got to die for the cause. I give you a crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Look at chapter 1 in verse 9. John couldn't even escape but the apostle who may be 80 or 90 years old at this time. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the what? The tribulation. I'm part of it, John says, and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God. Because of the preaching of the gospel. That's why, I'm on, that's why I've been exiled. I think this just makes sense. I, I'm not saying, even if you don't agree with this, and that's okay, but I, I, I think you can see this is not inconsistent from what we find in Revelation. Since the beginning of the church, like you said, conflict has always followed the preaching of the gospel. Stephen, Acts 7, murdered for preaching the gospel. 
James the apostle, not the brother of Jesus, James the apostle, the brother of John, Acts 12, what happened to him? Got his head cut off. Paul, the end of 2 Timothy. Paul says, I know I'm about to die. He was going to be killed in Mamertine prison, probably in Rome. Conflict always follows the gospel. It was that way in the first century. Let me ask you something. Does conflict continue to follow the gospel today? Oh, oh we're dealing with it, aren't we? Big time now. I mean, for those of you who have been blessed to live to be 60, 70 years old, do you see a change today in how people are religiously and how they view the Bible compared to when you were growing up? Is there a change? Is the change been for the good or for the, for the better or for the worse? Did you ever think when you were a teenager that we would get to a time in this country where you will be on the outside looking in, you will be viewed as a bigot if you thought homosexuality was a sin and gay marriage was wrong? You ever think that day was going to come? Where you will be viewed as a bigot if you believe that God made a male and female? And this whole gender identity thing and transgender stuff is just ridiculous? And that, you know, you're a bigot if you think girls should play girl sports and sports and biological males should play male sports. I mean, have we lost our mind as a culture? We've lost our minds. Where are we going next here? Conflict continues to follow the preaching of the gospel. Today, the gospel continues to divide families, sever relationships, cost people their jobs, cost people their friends. And in some countries, some countries even cost Christians their lives. Some countries. So that's my view of the second seal there. I think this is the conflict. All the chaos and the murder and the persecution that this, I think this represents that following the gospel. Any comments on that? Anything you want to say about the conflict of the gospel? I'll, I'll let you make a comment or two. Anyone want to say something? Yes, sir. Our brother was saying that the, when you go back to the first writer and him conquesting through the gospel, that, that, is, that is not a finished work. That is an ongoing work. And as that work continues, this will continue. And that writer doesn't just stop. He's continuing on. And even when this writer comes out, he's continuing on. That, that's absolutely right. And that's the way the Lord wants it. Being a disciple, it's not easy. Jesus said, you got to take up your cross. Taking up a cross is not easy. You deny yourself. You follow me. That's what Jesus said. Excellent comment. Brother Dunn, go right ahead, sir. The other thing about this red horse is it's continually evolving, if we can use that term. <laughs> yeah. So the Jews started it. Rome continued it with emperor worship. It was picked up later by Islam. And this, this, this conflict against the church continues to Right. There has always, either within or without, been a battle going on against church. And, and, and to go with your comment, because Brother Don was talking about an ongoing battle in the church with the conflict. The devil, times change. 
People may change, but the devil, his tactics don't change. He may use different henchmen, but he's going to use something. He's going to use whatever he can in that time. And at this time, he's using an empire. Before, it was Jews. Now, we're seeing he's using other stuff. So he's always working. Let me say something about this third seal. I, I want to say something about the third seal. Y'all have given just awesome and wonderful comments today. I appreciate it. I appreciate I still got my job, too. So let's go on. <laughs> I, got, I got five more seals to go, so we'll see. Uh, uh, next seal. Third seal. All right. I broke the third seal, and I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like the, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil in the wine. Now that may sound a little confusing, so just give me the rest of the time to say something about that, and I'll give you the last minute to make a comment. In this part of the vision, John sees a rider, but the horse this time, the color is, it's a black horse. So we had, we went from white, red, black. Now, I don't want to focus on the color of the horse. I want to focus what's going on with the horse, and particularly the rider of the horse. The rider has in his hands not a bow. He don't have a bow. What does he have? Scales. Another way we could say that is he has balances, right? What do you use those for in the real world, scales or balances? You use them to measure stuff. Measure, particularly in this case, what? Food. Measuring food. So notice carefully verse number six. Verse number six, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Don't damage that oil and that wine, though. It is suggested that in these times, in first century times, a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley were enough to feed one man for guess how long? One day. Usually this amount of food, quart of wheat, three quarts of barley, was said in the ancient times to be enough food to feed one man for one day. Now, food to feed one man for one day was going to cost a denarius. Anybody remember what a denarius was in New Testament times? It's a day's wage. That's exactly right. So the point is... Part of the conflict, part of the conflict that would follow the preaching of the gospel would be economic hardships. Mitch touched on that some when he talked about the seven churches of Asia. Economic hardships. It would be so bad for the Christians that it would take them a full day of working just to get enough food to eat for one day. They had to work all day just to get enough food to survive for one person. I ain't talking about a man, his wife, and his two kids. This is just a man or just a wife or one kid. Imagine, so if you're a single Christian, you're going to struggle. But imagine if you got a family and it costs a denarius to get enough food to feed one person. That, when you, that's tough, isn't it? Do we have that problem in America right now? Well, gas pretty high, but ain't, it's not this bad. Not this bad. Christians would struggle to feed their families. They would struggle to feed themselves. Remember what Jesus told the church at Smyrna? Remember what he said to the church at Smyrna? Revelation 2 and verse 9, I know your tribulation and your what? Poverty. 
You're rich. You're rich spiritually. And I know about the blasphemy about those who say they're the Jews or not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Smyrna was going through this right here. They were going through these economic hardships. So I got to struggle to get, I got to struggle to get wheat and barley. But the oil and the wine, guess what? That's all good. That's a bunch of that. Don't touch the oil and the wine. What does that mean? Well, that means that while God's people will suffer, while they will be oppressed, the rich, guess what's going to happen to them? They're going to be just fine. They're going to be at ease. It's the Christians who are going to suffer. The Christians are going to suffer. But the, those who are able to afford oil, which is something rich people would get, and wine, which is something rich people would get, you're going to be able to get all that you want. You rich folks are going to be fine. The oil and wine, don't worry about that being hard to get. You're going to still be able to get that. It's the people who are Christians, the poor folks, they're going to struggle. The devil would use this tactic also to try to oppress God's people. So he's going to use the violence. He's going to use violence, but not just violence. He's going to use economics, economic oppression. Does anybody have any final comment on that this morning? Does that make sense? Do you see where we're going? You see why I call it the story of Revelation? We're getting the, the story of it. The gospel's preached. Conflict follows. Violence follows. Economic hardship follows. But we're still not done. We got four more seals. Four more seals. So, so far, it looks bad for Christians. At this point, at the end of seal three, it looks bad. But the, we got some more seals coming. God's still going to keep telling the story. Can we stop there right now? We'll pick up with seal number four. Seal number four on Wednesday, Lord willing. I appreciate you bearing with me. Thank you so much. You're such good listeners. I appreciate it.